0: If you brought a Bible with you, maybe electronically or you have a hard copy, go to the book of Romans, if you would, and Romans chapter 15, and at the same time, if you would, maybe put a bookmark or a finger in the book of Revelation, very last book in your Bible, Revelation chapter 21. We'll spend the bulk of our time in that this morning because we're going to be talking about heaven today, the ultimate hope that you have in store for you. And something that we don't typically do in the 11 o'clock service and in the nine o'clock service is Q and A. But I'm going to allow some time, because of the subject that we're talking about, to do a little Q&A this morning, if you're interested in that. You don't have to feel obligated to stay for it, but just a heads up, after the Saturday night service, we always do Q&A, and they went 45 minutes last night with questions. And then after the 9 o'clock service, we did it, and they went 45 minutes with questions afterwards. So if you're interested in that and you have time in your schedule, feel free to hang around and we'll engage in some observations and questions that you might have. Um, What we want to do is put a bow tie on the package that we've been talking about regarding hope. For three weeks now, Paul has been bringing this issue of hope forward. He talks about how hope produces encouragement and how encouragement produces joy and endurance. Well, that's why we want to focus on hope. These last three weeks, I think hope has been increasing for individuals I've been talking to anyway. I think you're going to find it really increasing for you today. But before we do that, I'd love to pray with you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I pray for all my friends here in this auditorium that we've gathered together, all those who are watching online right now, that you would unify us together in this common spirit of wanting to know more about who we are before you and what you've claimed is our destiny, what's waiting for us. And I thank you that you speak in very factual terms today. I thank you that it's not ethereal, but rather it's very specific. And you've given us this image for a reason, and I know it's to inspire hope. So God, I ask that you would do specifically that. Translate your word into hope for those who are looking for it this morning. And for those who already have it, God, take it to a greater level. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Start with you in verse 13 where we left off last week. And I told you we would just kind of camp on this one this week. It says this in chapter 15. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now maybe last week when you read that or just this morning when you read that you think, I want that. I want to abound in hope. How do I get that? I, I want it to that degree. Well, I'm going to encourage you this morning to let that word live with you Just let it have its place in your life. You'll notice if you pulled your notes out of the bulletin this morning that there's four Greek words. We don't normally do four Greek words, but there's a reason for that this morning. I want you to see what's going on behind that. So look at this very first one, this word abound. Now, my computer didn't like this when I put this word in because it's spell-checking it constantly, and, it, and I, I ultimately had to put a forward slash between super and abound because superabound isn't a word in the English language, and so my computer's constantly spell-checking me on it. Well, I accommodated, I put the little slash in there, but superabound is what the authors of the Bible wanted you to get from it, that you would have so much hope. That it would be leaking out of you to such a degree that you would have enough to spare. Enough to spare that you would influence others. And that's why it's transposed to cause to superabound. So I'm asking you this morning, is that you? Do you have so much hope for your future, both here on this planet and in your future life? Do you have so much hope that you are an inspiration to others? Because Scripture's calling you to that, and here's why I ask it that way, because I know that if you're satisfied, if you're filled up with the big picture of your future, if you know what your hope is, you are much more likely to do what we talked about in the last couple weeks in the sense of walking across the room and being the first one to extend a handshake. Walking through the parking lot with your eyes up and meeting people eye to eye instead of with your head down. Being the first one to walk into the atrium when you're eating a cookie and introduce yourself to somebody you might not know. You're much more likely, if you've got that kind of hope, to share that with others who are living in a world of shattered hopes. And I'm sure you know individuals like that in your social circle. I'm sure you know people like that who are living with no hope of their future. So let's understand the basis of this hope that he's talking about. Because without the basis, the rest of this is completely meaningless. We might as well not talk about heaven this morning if we don't understand the basis of the hope. So from a biblical standpoint, hope does something that the world cannot do. We talked about this three weeks ago, individuals use the word hope freely by saying things like, I hope the Spartans win this weekend, I hope they can make it into the final four. We use hope that way but that's not the way the Bible uses the word hope. Hope used in the Bible pushes out anxiety, it pushes out fear, it pushes out bitterness. And the Bible actually says biblical hope, it produces joy. It produces encouragement. It produces peace in your life. Now, who is the basis of my hope and what is the basis of my hope are the two questions I'm asking myself this morning. Well, we saw the answer last week in verse 12, and in order to go forward in talking about the things of heaven, we have to go backward for just a second. Verse 12 said this. Look with me on the screen at Romans 15, 12. Again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, And he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. So verse 12 is very specific. There's an individual that we're supposed to be hoping in. If you're new to church and you're not sure who the Gentiles are, it's you if you're not Jewish. Because as far as the Bible is concerned, there's the race of Jews, biologically born as a Jew, and the rest of the population of the planet, Gentiles. And it's not a derogatory term, it's just two groups of people that Scripture talks about. Well, who's Jesse? We landed on that last week. Jesse is the father of the greatest king of Israel, King David. And King David was told that he would have a throne that would endure forever. But that's not possible because David is a man who's dead and gone. How could his throne endure forever? Well, he's talking about the root of Jesse. In him shall the Gentiles hope. So it's talking about the Messiah. When the Messiah will come. So Israel as a people is looking for this ruler who would come, and we're told that this ruler would rule over all of the earth, not just the Jewish people, but also, also over the Gentiles in Him. So let's bear down on that phrase for a second. In Him shall the Gentiles hope. We're saying, who is the basis of my hope? Well, it's very clear as you read the Bible, the Him is Jesus. Amen? Him is Jesus. We get that very clearly. But that word in is really important. You want to circle that in your Bible this morning? Maybe if you have your Bible open or make a note when you get home and get your Bible out, circle the word in. Because in is really significant. It's way different than hoping for something. Who is the basis of my hope? It's in Jesus. When I hope in something, it better be dependable. It's far different than what I hope for. If my hope is in my financial portfolio, if my hope is in my job security, if my hope is in a relationship, if my hope is in that college I want to get into, what happens when I don't get into it? My hope is in something that's unstable, I can't control the variables. So that's hoping for, that's a wish, that's a desire. Let's use a sports analogy. If your hope is in your team and you want your team to get the championship, your hope has to be in the quality of those players. But what happens if a player gets sick or gets injured or doesn't show up for the game? Well, your hope is in something unstable. You can't control the variables. Well, who is the basis of my hope? My hope basis is in Jesus and my hope is in Him. Jesus is the source of my hope. So now I have to ask the next question. Okay, if he's the who, let's address the what issue. What is the basis of my hope? Well, the basis of my hope, according to the Bible, is in heaven because Jesus said it's a rock-solid destination. It's guaranteed. It's where I'm promised I will inherit eternal life. So the who is Jesus, the what is heaven, So, what does our future hope look like when we talk about heaven? What is waiting for me on the other side? What are my family and friends who've gone before me currently experiencing? What are they enjoying? We want to understand this intimately. It's been about four years since a New Hope family, since we've really looked at this in any depth. We probably should do this every year, just because it reminds us of the hope, of the things that are waiting for us. Well, I want you to know this first and foremost up front. When you die, what happens to you in your future is absolutely knowable. The Bible promises that. I found this really interesting because I watched an interview earlier this week with Canal Reeves. He's an actor in, in Hollywood, and he's got a movie coming out, and so he's doing the late show tur- circuit, and he's doing tours, and he's talking to a late show internet uh, host, and so he's on one night late show, and the, the host is saying, so um, tell me about your movie, and he talks about the movie, there's a lot of death in it, and the interviewer stops him, and he says to him, Canal, um, I think that's how you pronounce it, Canal, Canal, whatever. He says, so what do you think happens to you when you die? And immediately, you know, the room goes quiet. And he stumbles around. He's fishing for the words. He doesn't know what to say. And then he stops and says, well, this is what I know. When I die, I think the people who love me are going to miss me a lot. Okay, well, the room goes, ah, right? But I thought as I'm listening to this, what a weak answer. What a weak response. Whether he knows the answer or doesn't know the answer, I don't know. Maybe he didn't want to say it in that moment. But what happens to you is absolutely knowable when you die because the Bible is very clear about it. A believer in Jesus, when you die, you are instantly in the presence of God. Scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, meaning you're conscious, you're alert, you're not in a sleep state. And you're in spirit form, according to the Scriptures, until you're given the resurrected, glorified body. So that's true of a believer. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are instantly in the presence of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Hope you're good with that because that's what Scripture says. Here's what Scripture also says, though. The Bible also declares that if you're not a believer, you are instantly put into what you might think of as a holding cell or what the Bible calls hell, a place that's holding you until the day of judgment. Well, what happens at the day of judgment? At the day of judgment, the Bible says that hell is emptied out and all those who were in hell stand before the great white throne and are judged by God. So the Bible's very clear that when hell is emptied out and all those who died without faith in Jesus Christ stand before the throne, They're cast into the lake of fire. Scripture's very clear about what happens when you die. It is absolutely knowable. But we're here to talk about heaven this morning. And we know that there is life after this life. Life after life is real. So the first thing we want to emphasize is that heaven is real. It's a real place. It's a real place with physical aspects to it. In the New Testament alone... 276 times heaven as a real place is referenced. Hell is referenced 2,000 times in the New Testament. And that's just in the New Testament. So the Bible refers to three heavens. And we need to talk about that briefly just going forward so you understand the language that's being used here. The first heaven that's being referred to in the Bible, and be careful when you're reading so that you understand what it's talking about, the first heaven is the atmosphere around you. It's where you live and breathe. It's where the birds fly. It's where the airplanes cruise. And that's referred to as a heaven or a firmament in the Bible. It's also referred to as the sky in the Bible. The second heaven is the cosmos. That's interstellar. That's where the planets are at. That's where the nebula, that's where the solar system is. And then the third heaven is the dwelling place of God. So you find Paul saying things in 1 Corinthians like, I know a man who in Christ was caught up into the third heaven. That's why it's referring to it that way. So the Bible refers to three heavens kind of in a, a general way of the first two, but in a very specific way of the third one. Well, in that location, in the third heaven, Jesus promised that he's preparing a place for those who trust in him. John fourteen two says this, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now, I'm going to give you an assignment right now. Count the number of times the word you surfaces in this phrase. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. How many times, church? Five. Do you think that sounds really personal? Do you think Jesus was trying to drive a point home? This is about you and about your relationship with him. This is for you. It's something he's done for you, and scripture wants you to know the details about what's waiting for you. Now, in relation to these things, the Bible reveals what is best described as absolutely astonishing. I don't know how else to describe it for you, but in Revelation chapter 21, and if you've been in Romans 15 up to this point, you might want to flip over to Revelation 21 now. But Revelation 21 gives you a front row seat into the future uncreation of this world that we know. And why do I say that? Because everything flees from the presence of God in this current world that we're in, because it's contaminated by sin, it's a result of the fall. And so, Scripture starts out in Revelation by saying, this is going away. This planet, this universe, it's going to disappear. There's going to be a new creation, Second Peter 3.13. According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I told you to be very careful when you see the word heavens in the Bible. You notice it there that heaven is referred to in the plural sense. And it's also next to earth, which is in a singular sense. Heaven in a plural sense is the word aduro in the Greek language, and it's talking about, in that case, the sky. It's talking about the nebula, the first two heavens The heavens are going to go away, and we're looking for a new heavens. So God's going to create a new earth, which is absolutely consistent with the Old Testament and the New Testament. Look with me on the screen. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. You might want to remember that particular verse when we come to Q&A and that might trigger some questions for you. Let's go to 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. New Hope, what we're talking about is a total vanishing of everything that we have ever known The only thing that remains is you and God and what God has prepared for you. So the Bible anticipates a violent termination of this universe. Dr. Barnhouse wrote about this in 1971. He's a prolific author, and he was a pastor also. He's dead and gone now. He's in eternity. But he wrote this. There is to be an end of the material heavens and earth which we know. It is not that they are to be purified and rehabilitated, but that the reverse of creation is to take place. They are to be uncreated. As they came from nothing at the word of God, they are to be sucked back into nothingness by this same word of God. So quick review of what we've talked about, these first two things. Heaven is an actual place. It's not a state of consciousness. It's a physical location. And God, the Creator, is going to create again, and He's going to create a new realm for us to dwell in, a place where you will be forever purified. Now go forward with me in Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. That's the next Greek word in your notes, it's the word kainos. And Kinos means something that's never before been seen. When it uses the word new, it doesn't mean remade. It means it's new. You've never seen it before. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. So now you're starting to get some detail. You're getting a description of a city, an eternal city with details to it and measurements. And this is an actual physical city with physical references. And it's called the holy city. Well, how does the Bible use the word holy? It uses it as though something's been set apart. Set apart for who? For God. That's what the word holy means. Hagios, set apart. So New Jerusalem, this city, is heaven's capital city, What happens when you think of city life? Some of you love city life. I have a daughter who loves coffee shops, so when she thinks of city life, she she thinks of coffee shops, right? What do you think of? Well, you think of relationships. You think of interdependability. We think of cooperation. We think of doing life together, in other words, social life. Well, Hebrews 11 tells us something remarkable about this city. Look with me on the screen at verse 10. The city, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So God is a designer, and He likes building, and He likes the building trades, and He likes architecture, and if you like those kind of things, you like to create, you like to do things with your hand, do you like to build? You are a reflection of the image of God. Scripture says you were created in the image of God. This is God all over you. God loves to create. He is creator. He is a craftsman. But we're also told in verse two, it looks like a bride adorned for her husband. That's the last Greek word in your notes, I think. Maybe, maybe it's the third one. It's the word cosmos. So cosmos is the root word of the word cosmetics. We're really familiar with makeup in our world. We're familiar with cosmetic surgery. We're familiar with women's cosmetics that they use to adorn their beauty. This is the root of the word cosmetics, cosmos, And cosmos means this appropriately ordered beauty. So when this word is used here, cosmos, we're talking about God decorating something and making it incredibly beautiful. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is one, I put number one, two, and three in there, watch these pop up, is among men and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. But John writes something interesting there. He actually says there's a voice yelling it out from the throne. Pay attention! God will be among men. They will be his people. He will be among them. Why? Three times. Why say it so emphatically? Because the truth is so staggering. We've not seen that since the Garden of Eden. God hasn't been among us. He's removed from us. To be among us is so staggering. It requires this loud voice from the throne to call it out three times. Go forward with me to verse four. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away, and he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. See, heaven is so dramatically different, it requires negatives to describe it. Because all you and I know are grief and suffering and pain. We live on a fallen planet. But he's saying, no, it's not there. There's no suffering. There's no grief. There's no pain. It doesn't exist there. Well, what do you think of when you think of grief and sorrow and pain and sadness? Well, you think of death. You think of decay. If you lost someone near to you, whether it was 10 years ago or it's been within the last year, you know that pain that he's writing about. John lived in a period of time when Christians were being thrown to the lions in the stadiums in Rome. He understood what it was to lose friends. He says, that's that's not there. There's no death there. But notice this, church. How close do you have to be to someone to wipe away the tears from their eye? You're talking about the tenderness of God being represented there. How close does Jesus have to be to you to wipe a tear away? Intimate, face-to-face contact with the living God. What you're looking at is a reversal of the curse in Genesis 3. Because he says right there, I'm making all things new and the all is you. You're included in that. In other words, you're getting a new body. I hope you're prepared for that and understanding that this body, this is just a temporary shelter. This is just a tent, Scripture says. It's going to decay, it's going to turn to dust, and it's going to fade away. You're getting a new makeover, a perfect, glorified, sin-free body which is not subject to any pain, which is not subject to any suffering, perfect physically, perfect mentally, perfect spiritually. Who's up for that? I'm totally up for that because I'm feeling the effects of gravity these days, right? (laughs) You know, if you've been looking, looking for a perfect body all your life, God's got that in store for you. Gravity's taking its toll. I feel sometimes when I go to bed like somebody stuck a kryptonite belt inside my mattresses because when I wake up the next morning I cannot leap over buildings with a single bound. I might like to do that and I'm definitely feeling the effects of the radiation of the sun. We all do. We all feel the fallenness of this planet. So God declares that kind of hope. That's waiting for you. Are you ready for a speed tour? Let's do a speed tour by going to verse 10. If you've ever looked online at real estate and you've seen these individuals who create drone images and and they fly over pieces of property, this is just essentially what John does. He's flying us through this new heavenly city that's been waiting for us. Verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper." So the most distinguishing feature that jumps out to me when I'm reading this is that I see what Jesus has been preparing for me. He says, you're going to first see the Shekinah glory. You're going to see the glory of God just busting through and it's absolutely unconfined and it's brilliant and it's blazing. And John writes, it appears as a giant celestial body coming down from space with the glory of God streaming out of it. And he says, I had to go up on a great high mountain to see it. Now, he uses the word great a lot. You're going to see it occur again. In the Greek language, the word great is megas. And when you see it in the Bible, it's meant to be used that way. Megas. Let's say it together on three. One, two, three. Megas. You get some gut going there, right? You got to say it powerfully that way. So he says in verse 12, it had a megas high wall with 12 gates and the gates, 12 angels, and names were written on them, which were the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. They were, there were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. So a megas high wall with specific dimensions, and we're going to get into that in just a second. But that means there's limits. That means there's entrances That also means departures, you can come and go. There's people coming and going, the authors of scripture write. And there's not one pearly gate, there's 12 of them. So regardless of the descriptions you've heard in jokes, and we've all heard the jokes about Peter at the pearly gates, don't look for Peter at the gate. Look for a megos angel, a giant angel standing, massive angels standing at each of the 12 gates. But even more significant than that is what's at the entrance. At the entrance of the gate is the legacy of God's work on earth through the nation of Israel and through the church of Jesus. In the names of the gates are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. What's that doing? It's reminding everybody, I started with these people. I chose these people to be a light to the entire world so that all the world would know who I am. But we're also told in verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So in the foundation of it, you're looking at the work of the church. And John's looking at his own name carved into the walls of the city. How cool would that be to see your name carved into the foundation stones of heaven? But bigger than that, this is a beautiful picture of the harmony of the old and the new covenant working together to accomplish God's plans. Let's move forward. Verse 16 The city is laid out as a square. And its length and its great is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width, and catch this, this really caught people off guard in the Q&A that we did. Its length and its width and its height are equal. What's the largest city in the world that we know of today? Our planet, largest city population-wise, Shanghai, China, 28 million people. What's the largest city landmass wise? Oh, well, that's New York City. New York City is the biggest geographical area of any city on the planet. Can you name any city that you could identify on this current planet that is 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles? I can't. It doesn't exist. God's creating something that we don't know and we don't understand. But I understand God's really into cubes. If I go back to the book of 1 Kings and I look at the Holy of Holies, when God told Moses what to build for his dwelling place, it's a perfect cube. Its length and its width and its height are equal. So God apparently is really into cubes and if you took this cube 1,500 miles square and you superimposed it over this planet, it's going from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico and it's going from Colorado to the Atlantic Ocean. How does that work? Well, it doesn't work on this planet. It needs a new earth. How big does the new earth need to be to sustain this enormous city? Now, people were tripping up over this because like, we've never seen anything like that. No, we haven't ever seen anything like that. But do you know that within our galaxy, within the Milky Way galaxy, there's a star that's so big, it's called the Canis Majoris. Astronomers call it the big dog. And Canis Majoris is so big that it takes a 777 52 years to do one lap all the way around it if you could actually fly around it. That's a massive planet. God can create what God wants to create, and we're looking at something that we can't make sense of, but yet we're told, according to Scripture, it's n- not an analogy, it's very specific. Go with me to verse 18. The material of the wall was jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The scene is absolutely breathtaking, church. We're looking at a spectrum of dazzling color flashing from this cube. Would you say that your God is a God of beauty? God is a God of beauty and He lavishes His beauty on you. I go to prepare a place for you. He wants to lavish this on you. Verse 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls, and each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Here's another thing I know about our God, God is not into fake. So God's not going to use fake pearls, right? Okay. So I'm asking myself, how big does that oyster have to be, right? Because we're looking at a 1,500 square mile cube with these 12 massive gates. I don't know how big the gates are, but we're talking about these angels standing guard at these gates so the nations can stream in. Uh, Everything here is transparent, and God's glory is blazing through it. How, How do you read this stuff? Well, when you read it, here's a good rule of thumb that theologians like to practice, at least most conservative theologians. Treat the Bible literally, and when God means it as an analogy, He will tell you. So you find analogies throughout Scripture. For instance, here's a reference to that. In John chapter 1, John says that he saw Jesus. And he says, when I saw Him, His eyes were like a flame of fire. And he said His feet were like burnished bronze. Do you notice that John used in that case the word "like? It's like this." Now Jesus doesn't have torches for eyes, and he doesn't have boots made of bronze. What John was describing is something he couldn't quite get his mind around saying, "It's like this, but it's like that." You notice that he doesn't do any of that when you come to the description of heaven? He's very specific, very exact. There's no analogy here. He's saying this is what it is, so you should be noticing the condition of the gold that he's talking about because we identify with gold. We get that. We understand gold is really valuable. In heaven, God uses it for pavement, but gold, when it's uncovered on earth, it's not in a desirable condition. Now, that's really significant to me. I worked in foundries when I was in college to earn my way through college, to earn time for flight school. And so I understand working in those foundries, the smelting of metal. And so when metal was purified, what happened was we would cook that stuff and all the impurities would come to the surface and somebody would skim the impurities off the top and what was left was the pure metal afterwards, well in this case, gold. The heaviest, purest gold settles to the bottom, the impurities come to the top. So on earth, when we're looking at impure gold, it's not desirable. It's got a lot of dirt on it. It has to be smelted, and then it leaves the purest gold behind. But gold in heaven is of such purity, so refined that it's actually transparent to allow the glory of God to shine through it. Now, this really speaks to me because not only is heaven this place of purity, But so are the inhabitants. Have you been made righteous by the blood of Jesus? We're told that we've been purified by what Jesus did on the cross for us. As as though we went through a smelting process and we didn't do it. He did it. He's the one who refined us. He's the one who made us purified. So not only is heaven a place of purity, so are the inhabitants. God purifies all those who will enter the city. You cannot enter if you haven't been purified by Jesus, because he said there's only one way in. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. First John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let's wrap this up. Verse 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, Uh, In antiquity, every city of any importance had at least one temple or church. You can't go to a city on this planet now that doesn't have a temple or a church, synagogue of some type. Why? Because as long as there has been sin, there's been a need for a temple or a church or a place to worship. Well, in heaven, there's no need for that. There's no need for a church building. And as spectacular as our new building is on East Saginaw, and as great as it's gonna be to be there, you won't need it in eternity. Because scripture says the Lamb and God are its temple. Well, let's just think that through real quick. When God first created mankind, He walked with Him in the garden in the cool of day. So we had intimate contact with Him. But because of the fall, because of the rebellion against God, We no longer could be with him. And so God said, I'll tell you what, you build a sanctuary place, call it the Holy of Holies, and I will be there. And so God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And then in the New Testament, we're told we become the temple of God. The the Holy of Holies has gone out of existence, and the Spirit of God comes and dwells within us. And that's why the Bible says, your body, you are the temple of God. But the Holy Spirit only seals you for this period of time. As a pledge, Scripture says, Ephesians 1.13, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Well, I know a pledge is temporary. A pledge is temporary until the promise is fulfilled. So the Holy Spirit is now within you. You're the temple of God. God dwells with you and the indwelling of the Spirit is only a down payment because it's a pledge to your future hope. Verse 23. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. This is radically different from anything I know on present earth. You and I are totally dependent upon the light cycles of light and darkness. There's no need for heat. There's no radiant heat. There's no gravitational pull. There's no light bulbs to burn out. I don't have to have my propane tank refilled to heat my house. Because God is the energy source here. His blazing Shekinah glory is the power source. And here comes another verse, 24. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never close. So in ancient times, there are walled cities, right? What do they do at nighttime? Sun goes down, it gets dark. You want to keep out the invaders? You close the gates of the city. There's no invaders here. There's no burglars. There's no need for a 911 system. You don't need a theft deterrent system. Now, if you want to go forward with more details than what we've looked at today, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Go to the book of Revelation and read chapter 22, because chapter 22 is so full of details, especially things like, are we going to eat in heaven? Yes. Yes. Right? Looking forward to that. Yes, you are going to eat in heaven. Scripture is very explicit about that. There's food in heaven. Not going to have the effect on you that it has on you today. Jesus actually ate with the disciples after the resurrection. But here's what you're going to see when you read Revelation 22. You're going to see that inside, we're told there's this beautiful, spectacular garden that is reminiscent of Eden. But that's not what primarily excites me. That's not primarily what causes my hope to abound to the degree that it leaks out and I have reason to tell other people. Here's what causes my excitement to abound. Look with me at verse three. There will no longer be any curse. How great is that? That's all we've known. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. No longer any curse. For me, this is the most dramatic change from present earth. I can easier get my mind around a 1,500 square mile cubed city than I can that. Because I've lived with it all these years. It's all I've ever known, the curse It's what's causing the decay. It's what's causing the death. The reason you're separated from your loved ones. It's the curse of Genesis chapter 3. And the removal of the curse means the end of sorrow and the end of pain. And especially the end of death. The Bible says the last great enemy is death. And it will be thrown into the lake of fire. Terminated forever. So absolutely no trace left of the curse. Here's the last thought I send you out with. It says his name is on them. What's that? Now, you're talking about personal possession. Our children's ministry downstairs has a great security system, and when parents come in, they know that they need to go to a monitor, and they type in the child's name, and it will print out labels. And the la- one label goes on the child, the parent gets the other label, and that's a security system. And what's that saying? It's saying, that one's mine. Well, God says this one is mine to the degree I'm putting my name right on their forehead. Don't mess with it. That one belongs to me, and it stands as a proof of ownership. Today, you and I understand concepts. That's what we have here. We're told then there's going to be no fog to blur our mind. Right now, it says that we look through the glass dimly. Paul says it's like a fog over you. You can't really fully comprehend. But then we will see him as he is. Then we will see him face to face. So the truth is we haven't even begun to see. Scripture reflects that. 1 Corinthians 2.9. As it is written, things which the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. These words were written and presented by God to you that you might have hope. That's how Paul started out in Romans 15.4. The things that were written in former times were written for the perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures that you might have hope, even to the degree new hope, that you would abound in it, that it would leak out of you, that you're so confident of your future, you would say, that's my destiny. Now, who's going to be there? That's typically the question that comes up. When We work through this kind of stuff. Who's going to be there? Is my Uncle Ed going to be there? What about my Aunt Myrtle? Is she going to be there? What about my friend who died in an accident in eighth grade in a, in a car collision? Is he going to be there? It's the wrong question. The question that Jesus asks of you is, are you going to be? Who is Jesus to you? What do you do with who Jesus is? See, you can't control the variable. You don't know what your Uncle Ed or your Aunt Myrtle or your friend in eighth grade did in the last moments of their life. And in moments like this, when we ask this question, I've got to tell you, I am so grateful for the thief on the cross. Because the thief on the cross is a reminder to me that even in the last moments of someone's life, in their final breath, they may confess Jesus and God takes them. What did the thief on the cross say to Jesus? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus' immediate response. I tell you the truth, this day you will be with me in paradise. The guy never went to Bible college. He never even walked with Jesus. He didn't know much about the Bible apparently. But Jesus says, based on the confession of your faith that I am who I say I am, you will be with me in eternity. So who will be there? That decision is up to God alone. He sits on the great white throne. What you have to deal with is yourself. Do you believe in Jesus as your Savior this morning? Have you asked him to take away your sin and purify you? That's what the scriptures invite you to do. Because the best thing about heaven, it's the presence of Jesus. You get to be with the one, face to face with the one who loves you so much, he died for you so that you can enjoy all of these things that we've just talked about. Are you ready for that? I'm gonna close in a most unusual way this morning and then you can decide if you want to stay for Q&A. We don't, we rarely actually, very unregularly do benedictions here. But Romans 15, 13 is considered to be one of the greatest benedictions of the Bible. So I'm gonna ask you to do this. Would you stand where you're at and receive this as a blessing over you? This is the way Paul's praying. So we're going to receive it as even Paul's own voice praying over the church. And he says this, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Go on out and have a great week, New Hope.